You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Well, I don't see the point in waiting any longer. Let's bring her out. A star attraction, the one you came to see. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, Miss Judy Gold. How do you get your first set at, at Yuck Yucks? How do you, because you know, we used to, well, I don't know if a lot of the people, I explained this to my son the other day, you know, when I started um, and before there, you know, if you wanted to work in the city at, uh, at the improv or the comic strip, you had to get up really early in the morning and stand online and pick a number. Uh, wow. And then you'd go on that night if you were one of the early ones. Um, wow, and wow. that's how it wasn't like bringer shows and anything like that. Like it was really, did you get a number? What number are you? And that was it. So how did you get your first set? Yeah, so it it seemed to work that way at the Yucks in Toronto when I was still in Ontario, still right. in high school, because there was this voicemail system where you had to phone in the morning. Right. But the thing was, they wouldn't tell you the list until like sort of late afternoon. By that right. point, it was too late for me to try to get there. Um, but in Vancouver, there was a much, much smaller scene at the time. We have a, a, a much bigger scene now. And it was actually really easy. It was just like showing up you know, and, and saying I wanted to go up. And I think I got there maybe a couple hours before the show. And, uh, it, it, it was actually pretty easy at that time in Vancouver because there was a fair number of shows and the scene wasn't that big. I would say maybe there was like 40 people in town doing it. And now I would say it's at least double that, if not even more. Right. That's great. Um, you get on stage, the MC introduces you. What does it feel like? Are you fucking freaking out before? I think, well, I think, uh, I think I was initially disappointed because the audience was so small, right. you know, it's like open yeah, mic, plays, like amateur yeah. Yeah. Wednesday or Tuesday or something. There's probably like five, seven people in the audience on a night like that, that first night, just like yeah. very few people. So it sort of felt disappointing that it wasn't you know, the crowd wasn't even as big as what I got in my high school classes, you know? When right, I, right, right. <laughs> so th that, that definitely made it feel not as exciting as I think I thought it would be. And to not get um, the laughs, you know, because me being an inexperienced idiot, just right. assume like, oh, this is all gold. Like, this is just wall to wall right. laughs and getting very little in return was really humbling. And I guess it was, I, 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 rem I remember less about being on stage and more about the experience after of just how bad it felt and that choice to go back. And right. Right. I, I think, the, yeah, I think some people don't make it past that. Right. Like you, right. you, you have to just learn to be with that disappointment and somehow right. want to go back for more. It's just funny because usually the usual story is 
I killed the first time. And then the second time fucking sucked. And it's like cocaine, you know, like right, the first right. time you're like, oh my God. And then nothing ever. Right. You know, so it's, it, that is interesting that you went back, but that's how, you know, you were, I don't know, you were, you're a comic, you're a comic first. I, do you think you're a comic first and foremost? Yeah, I think so. I mean, over, over, I've definitely worked in film. That's been my primary thing, right. just income wise. And, you know, that's part of why I probably have taken so long to make an album just because I wasn't chasing it as deliberately as someone who, for whom stand up was the primary right. thing. Um, but it's definitely where I feel most like myself now on stage when it's, when it's going well. Right. And definitely is something that I think as I've gotten older, I've known that I'm a comic because I'll go back to it in the darkest moments. Like my first breakup, my second breakup. Right. When my mom died a few years ago, you know, that was a moment where I was like, oh man, am I going to be able to be funny again? Right. And I, pro I think I was probably on stage like a month after it happened. Yeah. And it was fine. I could, I could be that version of myself on stage. Right. And, and so, yeah, I think that's how I've come to know that I I'm think, a comic. No, you know, doing research about you. I mean, I think also the fact that real standups speak truth to power. And that's really kind of what you're all about. When you were 20, Zach Galifianakis hired you to work as an editor and segment director on Look Who, Who Isn't. Look who is it that, isn't. It, look who it is. Oh my God, my handwriting. Oh, wait, really maybe, maybe look who it isn't. I think that's what it's called. How, how did he find you? Did he see you doing stand up? So, Zach is, uh, I haven't communicated with Zach in many years, but uh, definitely was a huge influence early on for me. He was up in Vancouver and he was acting on a Fox show called, I can't even remember what it's called, but it was a spinoff from Buffy. Right. Where the brunette woman from Buffy got her own show about how if she could touch a dead body, she could see how they died and then solve the mystery. <laughs> and uh, and <laughs> this is Zach like pre-fame, right? I think he had had a Comedy Central yeah. uh, half hour, but that was, I think, the extent of, of it. And um, so he played the coroner on this show. And so he would live in Vancouver for like half the year. And he would just come to these stand-up nights, especially um, the smaller kind of independent ones. Um, the main one being the show called The Laugh Gallery, which still exists, um, which was hosted by Graham Clark, who uh, hosts a podcast called Stop Podcasting Yourself, a, a beloved Vancouver podcast. And uh, Zach would just come to this show and just, you know, hang out. He would headline almost every week. He would play the piano. There was a piano in this in this uh, bar. Yeah. And every comedian looked up to him as yeah. like a hero because he was on TV. He was right. right. And, but he was just so, so generous. Yeah. Um, and just a lovely yeah, human being. Yeah. He's a good guy. He's a good really, guy. Really good guy. And yeah. he just, so I was, I was in film school at the time and, uh, I would make these videos with other comedians, just kind of weird sketch things and show them at this show. And Zach was just interested in it. He would like, you know, talk to me about the videos and, you know, say that he liked them, which like meant the world to me. And then um, 
he had this idea that he was going to edit together his own straight to DVD special of, it was sort of an anti-comedy thing where it was meant to be, he had had a talk show on VH1 that got canceled. And then it wasn't like clips that were good. It was like clips of him just falling apart on stage. But he was like, I want to open this, this special with uh, me in a bingo hall, just playing bingo with old people being depressed. (laughs) And, uh, he was like, do you think you could make that happen? And I was like, oh, okay. And like, so this was my first time ever to like get to, I didn't direct that special, but that opening segment, he let me, you know, film it, direct it. That's and awesome. Produce it. And he paid me some money and um, in US dollars, I remember, which was yeah, so cool baby. to me. <laughs> um, so I don't even know if he knows how significant that, that, that was for me, um, but it definitely... Yeah, it was a big deal. That's awesome. Okay, so you produced a short documentary after the Typhoon uh, Haiyan. Typhoon Haiyan, Haiyan. Yep. yep. That hit the island that your mother was born and raised on. You know, there's a Canadian family. You talk about a lot about like this horrible how, you know, the, the storytelling part of this. And I heard you say, or read that you said, storytelling in the Philippines, um, th- that, that the people in the Philippines are maybe Filipino people, think of a story with the same respect you think of a dead person, a person who has lived, you know, that they revere storytelling. I found that to be so fascinating because here in America, we are basically, we have no, we have the weirdest relationship with the truth. You know what I mean? Yeah, like it's right. just they people just make up fucking stories and people <laughs> are like, yeah, who do that? <laughs> and, you know, and then we fucking storm the Capitol and we're all, yeah, well, he said the fucking vaccine. You know? <laughs> when did you learn that about about that culture? That storytelling is so important and, and revered by that by the people of the Philippines. So I, I took a. Uh... I mean, your research is incredible. I, I, I won't keep sidetracking side right. this conversation by bringing that up, but- um, No, I love it. Yeah. The So I took a workshop uh, here in Vancouver with a Filipino playwright and novelist named Merlinda Bobis, who, who now lives in Australia. And um, she had grown up on the, you know, there's hundreds, thousands of islands in the Philippines, sorry, thousands of islands in the Philippines. And she grew up on this island, Bicol, and that island basically had its own civil war in the in the eighties, maybe late seventies, um, that just tore the island apart. It was called Total War. Was the name of that war? And she grew, it's a grew fascinating up on this name. Yeah, geez, scary. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so she explained this as a as a, a a tradition in that island and and I've heard similar things over the years from other people but I really got this from her that yeah you have to treat a story with the same respect you would the remains of a loved one and what she taught me through that was that when someone passes away 
one of the first things, like when my mom died and we had her memorial, um, who's going to tell her story? Right. And that was tasked to me. So I was the one that stood up, you know, in front of everyone and told her life story and tried to, uh, you know, communicate the meaning of, of a life well lived. And when I tell that to you, it's obvious why I would be the one to tell my mom's of course, story, right. right? And that's what she's saying about stories in general, that there's a logic to who has the right to this story. And it's not to say that you can't tell other people's stories, but just that there is sort of some consideration to be put into it. And the thing that I love the most from what, what she explained about this was that all, all that that means is just constantly ask yourself, what is my relationship to this story? How is it influencing the way I'm telling it? And that just means kind of scrutinizing like, oh, why am I choosing to, to tell it this way? And so the example she gave, which was really harrowing, but a really strong example was she says, during that civil war, she had a friend when she was a teenager, her close friend, who when she was about 14, 15, left the village to go join the, the resistance. So basically moved into the mountains to take up arms. And, you know, that was a very big decision for a young woman to make. And she said, sure enough, a few months later, her friends, you know, this teenage girl's dead body washed up Ugh. in the village. And she said she was there. Everyone gathered around. Everyone was horrified and heartbroken. That dead girl's father held her body and spoke to everyone. Right. And she said the way he spoke um, instilled courage in us. And what he spoke of was the courage and fearlessness with which his daughter died. Right. And how proud of, of her that he was, and he didn't cry. And what she points out is she says, he didn't know that for all he, he didn't know how she died. Right. For all he knows, she died in terror. Right. But he, as her father in this moment knows what this community needs. Right. And how she, how his daughter would have wanted her story to affect the community. Well, that, that is so, cause I was going to ask you, it's like, when you're telling a story, is it the story, the per, the way the person you, you have to like, you take in consideration, how would this person want their story told? You yeah. know, not, yeah. well, I want to tell this because that shows this part of that person, but does that person want that part of them show? You know, it's just, it, it's, yeah, it's so, I loved reading that because I feel like we don't have that. Like there's so few people who really give that much importance and thought to telling a story, you know? And I get in fights with my partner all the time. At least because <laughs> I'll be telling a story and she starts asking, like I'm on this. It's like, it's a, a, one of our biggest fights is that I will start telling a story and I have it all set, you know, boom, 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 boom. And she starts interrupting and asking questions that have nothing to do with the trajectory of my story. And it 
fuck. This is our biggest <laughs> fucking fight in our relationship where I'll be like, you know, Ben, my son or one, you know, one of my kids was riding his bike and he came upon this car accident, whatever. And she'll be like, what bike? Wait, bike? <laughs> like, and I'm just like, you fucking, I fucking hate you so much. I can't, you know what I mean? So, um, <laughs> Hey everyone, you know what I just did? I tore, I poured, and I enjoyed a packet of Liquid IV. Because I love Liquid IV. Liquid IV is a major part of my life. And I just worked out with my trainer, and I had a delicious lemon ginger liquid IV. That one has a little extra, that has a little green tea in it, and so that's a little caffeinated. So I enjoy that because I needed it today. And you know, it's getting warmer out, and what does that mean? Summer. Oh God, please come, it can't come soon enough. And that means you have to hydrate. And that's what Liquid IV does. It hydrates you with benefits like electrolytes, vitamins, and clinically tested nutrients. And it has three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in one little stick. And that's why Liquid IV is the number one powered hydration brand in America. Okay? And I love it. I use it every day. Ben's basketball team uses it. It is a science-backed formula that works. It keeps you hydrated. And they have sugar-free. They have sugar-free packets in white peach, green grape, raspberry melon, and lemon lime. Okay? I didn't do the sugar-free. Okay. But Elisa does the sugar-free. So what are you going to do? You're going to stay hydrated because it's very, very important. And Liquid IV has been a longtime sponsor, and I love them. And they are a quality product. And this is what you're going to do. You're going to turn your ordinary, ordinary, can't speak. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and use code JudyGold at checkout. That's J-U-D-Y-G-O-L-D. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code JudyGold, J-U-D-Y-G-O-L-D, can't even say my name, at liquidiv.com. Got it? You're welcome. You have been in jail. Your prime, the prime minister, Stephen Harper of Vancouver, got on stage. I, and I'm still, don't worry. I, ha, I know we're getting to when the storm fades. Um, but you have got on stage. You put on an apron, right? You acted yeah, like you were yeah. catering. Yeah. <laughs> and he was um, brilliant. You dressed as a waiter, held a sign up while he was on stage saying climate justice now, and then went to went to jail. That, do you think your comedy ha- gave you the balls to do that? Like, do you think? You- De- definitely. That was part of it. There, the, I did that with a, fr- a friend named Shireen Sufi. She, she was on stage there too. And she had never done anything like that. And her interest or her, her belief that she could do it uh, with me was based in her theater experience. She felt right. like she could pull that off. Um, 
And but there is a little kind of context there that fills in a, a, a small gap, and it it's a it's a Jewish gap. Yeah, is, baby. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Is for starting in two thousand nine, I started to have the the great privilege to work with uh, two uh, Jewish men in New York named the Yes Men, mm-hmm. who do these um, political provocation pranks where they you know do yeah, stuff similar them. to this. I have them written down, but I didn't, I didn't know they were. Okay, go ahead. So, well, actually, Igor, who who I've worked with many times, uh, his family—they're all H- Hungarian Jews. So, so there's some uh, connection there for you there. <laughs> um, and uh, so that incident that you're describing with the prime minister, I had already been doing stuff with the Esmen for five years at that point, and definitely the things I learned from them. Uh, experiences that I that I had working with them and for them uh, helped give me the the you know the confidence that I could go right. in and, and do that. Um, but it was it 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 almost didn't work because we went to the hotel the night before. We knew we wanted to get on stage to kind of interrupt this the prime minister's event, right? And so we just cased the joint. We looked at what the waiters were wearing. Yeah. And then we went to a thrift store and bought this entire black outfit and the aprons, just like what they were wearing. But then sure enough, when we got there the next day, it turns out the waiters wear something different for an event like this. <laughs> so they're funny. literally in like white dress shirts, gray right. vests, like black bow ties, like totally different. Right. And so we stuck out like a sore thumb um, and we tried to, uh, you know... <laughs> account for that by we went in the bathroom and took these face towels and put little right. white napkins on our oh, hands. Oh, that's great. And we just walked back into the kitchen and, you know, when, when, when you do something like this, you're always worried that you're going to get found out. Right. Um, but one of the things I learned from the yes men is just that in a place like that, where there's a lot of power and wealth, the ego kind of prevents them from even thinking that someone would trick them. Like, right, right, right. They almost don't think they can be tricked or that anyone would dare to do that. And so the, the main lesson is just some like Jedi stuff is just, you just have to act like you're supposed to be there. Right. Right. Um, and it's also about the path of least resistance, which is a lot of improv is just whatever gets said to you. Don't, push back, just say yes, and try to keep steering it towards what you actually want to do. And so, yeah, we were stopped in the kitchen and, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, oh, they busted us. And they said, oh, we're doing a a huddle with all the staff. So you need to get in here. And so they huddle us up with like 30 other hotel staff. And if we didn't stick out before. Oh my God, that's fucking hilarious. Yeah. And they get to us and they're just looking at us and the manager says, where did you two come from? And I'm not going to say the name here, but I used to work for like a staffing kind of catering company. So I just pulled that out of my butt and said, Oh, we were sent by this, this company. And they said, Oh, they, they don't staff us here. You must be supposed to be at the other hotel a few blocks away. And so yes. And we say, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Maybe we're at the wrong hotel. Um, and so they start ushering us out and just before we're taking out the fire exit, we see the prime minister coming in 
And so we're like, oh, this is the moment. And so just make up this lie. Oh, my jacket, our our jackets are inside. That's a really expensive jacket. Right. Um, So they let us go back in to find our jackets. And then we just walked on stage and. And they were probably like, fuck. Um, And then you got, went to jail, right? Yeah. Well, actually that time. You didn't um, go to jail. You just got kicked out. They just drove me around in the paddy wagon. Um, which actually I've only recently learned is a racist term against Irish people. Oh, there you go. Um, so they're driving me around and then they drop me off at a bus station. Um, but I've been arrested seven, seven times, maybe eight times. Um, what is it like? What happens? Sometimes they're rough. Sometimes they're rough with, with the, I, I did this twice with the prime minister. Actually, I did it again a year later. Um, and, and they were pretty rough because, you know, those guys are not supposed to let this happen. So right. it's real embarrassing for them. It's about them. Yeah. Yeah. And so they put me in handcuffs. Sometimes you get taken to jail. The thing is, I've never been charged. Right. And um, part of, I mean, certainly my experience of police is not everyone's, of course. Right. Of course. Um, and that's part of why I do it, because I know I have a certain privilege in mm-hmm. how I'll be treated. But um, they, when they first arrest you, they say often, at least in Canada, that you've been arrested for assault by trespass, which basically just means you were somewhere you weren't supposed to be. Right. But they know that that charge won't hold up. And so they never end up charging you. Right. But all they want in the news is to be able to say, this protester did something, they're in handcuffs. Right, right. Assault by trespass. They want to intimidate people out of copying these things and and, and wanting to do the same. So, um, yeah, sometimes it's been rough. Sometimes I had injuries I had to kind of rehab from. But um, I've always been proud of these experiences. And, well, actually, to go back to my mom, you might not be able to find this on the Internet, but in the 70s, she's, as you said, she's at the University of Alberta um, as an immigrant with a student visa. And the South African cricket team comes to Edmonton to play cricket. And she was like pretty heavily involved in the anti-apartheid movement to to liberate South Africa. And she was just disgusted that there was going to be this cricket game. And so she, with some of her friends, ran out onto the cricket field in the middle of the match. I love that! And just started like digging holes in it with shovels. And uh, she was dragged off the cricket pitch and she was in a newspaper in Edmonton for that. I've never seen the article or anything. Um, But so definitely some of what I've done has, you know, been inherited from her. Yeah. Because she did that, you know, she was risking her immigration status, you know. So I'm uh, uh, I'm risking far less. So I I, I I feel. Yeah. Thank you. I love her. We're dedicating these these episodes to her. Um, Thank you. The film, When the Storm Fades, I, I mean, it's so, emo- was it so emotional for you to go and tell this story and deal with the emotions after this typhoon? I, I mean, like that's a giant project. Yeah, I think there's some years of, of again, some years of experience leading up that kind of prepare me for that. So. I had been working in climate change um, activism, like professionally as a communications person and an organizer 
for since 2008. So when that storm happened, 2013, that was five years later. So I had already just been, you know, thinking about climate change every day, which is very depressing, but- Oh, you're not kidding. you, You develop a certain thick skin to it. And then- in 2011, my uh, my family, my mom's sister, one of my cousins over there in the Philippines on a different island, 2011, different storm called Typhoon Sendong. Um, my cousin, Sheila, lost her home. Um, and literally because of climate change, the, the, the land that her home existed on was designated uninhabitable, which means that, you know, she was a working class a woman. So, you know, her family saved up for a long time to get this property, build this house. And then it's just gone. Like, and there's literally not even insurance because it's, I mean, this is part of the crisis of climate change, especially in countries like that is just, we're not ready to help people who are going through this. Well, I mean, to get flood insurance here, it's crazy. I mean, yeah. So, so I had been through that. I had, um, you know, at a distance, but I had, you know, been through the emotional experience of that, had been back to that island, had even shot a, a short documentary um, scene with my cousin a few years before. Oh, yes, I saw that. Yes. And then the um, doc- after right after the 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 typhoon had hit. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then did another short documentary on the, the other island. But I mean, Maybe there's something similar with this for you with the, you know, a a Jewish lineage, but for my mom, a lot of going back there when we would go back as she got older was increasingly just about trauma. So uh, a year before that the storm happened in 2013 on the island my mom was born, we had gone back there because her, (laughs) when her mom died when she was a kid, she was put in this family cemetery plot. And then decades later, they learned that my mom's uncle, who was a gambling addict, mm-hmm. had literally lost the family burial plot. Wow. To gambling. Had, had gambled with our, you know, grandmother's bones. So that plot had to get dug up. And my grandmother's bones were moved into a mass grave. Oh, my God. And my mom only learned about this like a decade later. Right. And she had never been back to sort of make peace with it. So the year before the storm happened, I was on this island and this is what we were doing. We were at the cemetery and it was just hugely, you know, sad and grief and, you know, all this stuff. Um, So when the storm happened and I went back to film with people, it just felt like, in some ways that had become a central part of my relationship with that place was that right, it often, right, right. often was about death and, you know, tragedy. I guess I'm, what I'm trying to say is it didn't feel overwhelming. Right, I, right. Felt, I felt emotionally strong enough to, to dive into this. And, and now with Canada and the mass graves, what yeah. the fuck? What yeah. the fuck? I mean, we're bad enough here, but. Yeah. I mean, to your credit, this is something I, I, I bring up with Canadians so your founding myth in the States, in my opinion, is the Revolutionary War, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you fought off the British, you created your own country, right. rah, rah, we're great. In Canada, we don't have that. Right. Like, 
we think that we had this period where the French and the British and the, and the native, you know, first nations coexisted. Right. And then we just negotiated our way out of it, but the queen is still on our money. Like, you know, we never, we never dealt with any of the shit. Right. And so my take on it is that our foundational myth is about glossing over conflict. Right. And that's where this belief that we're the, you know, the gentle, polite negotiators uh, is our, you know, our central myth, but there was genocide here. Right. It was just glossed over. It's so like, you know, those waspy families who don't fucking talk about anything. Yes. They're like, oh no, I know. Yes, I know. He he is doing heroin, but he's just fine. You know, like that whole, you know. Yeah. That's that that that's that's a great metaphor for it. I would say the whole country is like right. that in that that the the way that the the British colonial project, which I think is kind of brilliant because they did this everywhere, is to me it's incredible to go to a place you commit genocide against an indigenous population, right. which happened everywhere with the British colonial project, but then to then instill a, a religious system that's all about forgiveness. Right. And to insist that every day at a certain time, we sit and we eat these little sandwiches and we drink tea. Yeah. And just everything is nice and just don't talk about Yeah, right. Yeah. And so to, to make that, a daily ceremony to me is part of that denying and repressing the violence of our history. Right. Right. And I think just, you know, this summer it's, we already knew these bodies were there. Right. 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 And especially first nations communities have been saying this for years, but you know, now, now there's like whatever photographic radar evidence and we're having to deal with this thing we've repressed for so like, long. Guess what? You're not that fucking perfect. Yes. Hey everyone, did you know that Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the United States with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? And I'm one of them. You're listening to one of them. Fast Growing Trees has everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, house plants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and your space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever, forever. I just want you to know that I just got off a plane and I walked to my apartment. What was the first thing I did? is I came in and said hi to Avi, my fig tree. I'm telling you, and I have Yael, which is another plant, but Fast Growing Trees has changed my atmosphere here in my apartment. You don't need a lot of space, but they do have, you know, they have stuff for outdoor spaces. But I live in an apartment, and I'm telling you, Avi and Yael, yes, they're both Jewish names, Hebrew, the space looks so much better. And I just had a conversation with Avi. Like, I was like, I missed you. I love having living things here. It's very, very, I don't know, it's made this more of a home. It's the best. And Elisa has some too. And she loves them. And she talks to them too. But she got that from me. Anyway, check out Fast Growing Trees.
you need to be around plant life. This spring, they have the best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code Judy Gold, J U D Y G O L D, at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code Judy Gold at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code Judy Gold. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. You're welcome. Let's get to your album is fucking hilarious. Um, I know you. we've talked a lot about death and destruction, but it is part of your story. Yeah. Um, you're you're such a great storyteller. People listen to um, airports animals. I mean, the Wolfgang Puck thing is fucking hilarious. Um, <laughs> there's just so much. And it's interesting because you have talked about passing for a white guy. You know, you yeah. pass, you can pass. And, you know, as a lesbo feminist, you know, constantly and with two straight white sons, like watching right. the, you know, like that they automatically don't have to think about half the shit I do. Right. Right. Like, what is that? I mean, you must know shit about people that you don't want to know. I mean, like, you know what I mean? Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, there's some of it in my, uh, some of it in my, in my album. Uh, one, one thing that maybe connects all of these things is just that being stuck in the middle. Yeah. Which if you look back, you know, in myth and in history, tricksters are often like half breeds. Like they're often, you know, even going back to ancient Greece, it's like um, Hermes is like the God who's not quite a God. You're like a demigod. So you have to navigate both spaces. And that's just what I did throughout my childhood. I wasn't really Filipino and I didn't fully feel Canadian. Um, And so. Half-breed. That's all I ever heard. Yeah. (laughs) And so it's just like. you know, I feel like my whole life has continued to be just kind of figuring that out and, right. and, and figuring that out in, in my work. And, right. um, so yeah, I definitely like experience, you know, as I say on the album, white people only racism right? when they think that I'm white and that, right. um, you know, even ex- as early as high school, I remember after nine 11 happened, um, was at this party and I would have been, how old was I then? 18, maybe mm-hmm. uh, 17 and was standing in this, uh, the circle with all these young white kids. And they started um, making fun of people from Afghanistan and saying all this racist stuff. And I was the only one who wasn't laughing. And because I wasn't laughing, they realized like, Oh wait. Uh, and someone I, said like, are you, yeah. Afghani? Oh, I'm so sorry. I know. I love that. And, yeah. and, and I just said, no, I'm not oh. Afghani. I just didn't think it was funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just think, not didn't an think asshole. it was a- yeah. I'm not an asshole. Yeah. So I've definitely um, had that experience. Um, but then it's the same also when I go to the Philippines, I'm viewed as sometimes people will just think I'm white. Right. Um, but they'll definitely always view me as a, well, actually there they'll call they'll call a white person, Joe which is mm-hmm. because of the American military occupation. Right. It means GI Joe. Right. So they'll say, Hey Joe, Hey Joe. Um, 
So I'm definitely viewed as like a Filipino American there. Right. So it's, so I, I feel a bit white there, you know what right, I mean? Right, right. Um, I love being able to access these different spaces yeah, and a lot of my so, work. That's so great. Yeah. I love I would, that. I, I was bring up another uh, bit of Jewish history that connects to this. Are you familiar with the photographer Henrik Ross? Yes. Yes. So I, I see, I saw his exhibit, one of his exhibits, I saw his photos in person of him, you know, where he had, he was, I forget which, which uh, it was in Warsaw maybe. Mm-hmm. And I'm he was a janitor who like cleaned up in the, in the camp and snuck in this camera and, and took these amazing haunting, but also beautiful right. photos of these families that, you know, sadly didn't know what was about to happen. Right. And yeah, stories like that. I just, yeah, he that, was Polish. Uh, it was the Lodz ghetto. Okay. Um, okay. It's amazing. The history. So the fact that you got to work with Sasha Baron Cohen <laughs> must have been the fucking highlight of your fucking, speaking of Jews, life. <laughs> it, it was. It was a trip in part because I felt like I couldn't show that. Like I couldn't right, right, just right. turn you into a fanboy. Yeah. I had to be a professional who was there to do a, a job. And um, he doesn't know this. The production didn't know this. But the first day I was in the room with him was actually my birthday. Oh. And I didn't want to tell anyone because I thought I would start crying. Right. But privately, it was like, oh my this God. is amazing. Like, I, I, w when I went and studied with that clown teacher who he had learned from, I never did it, like, even imagining that I would ever meet him or right. get to work with him. It was more like, I just want to learn some of this. Um, so it was, yeah, it was something I hadn't did, even did really dreamt Did you tell of. him? Did you tell him? I, I never I, I never brought it up. No, I just... Uh, I just I love was that. just there to work. So just wanted right. to focus on the work. Yeah. Oh, good for you. All right. <laughs> so I ask all my podcast. First of all, I fucking love, I find you fascinating and I love you. Uh, and I, and I want to meet you in person. Um, I would love that. I always ask my podcast guests two questions. Okay. okay. Number one, we're very pro mental health. So what do you do for your mental health? Uh, I'm on, I, you know, I'm on antidepressants. I meditate. I exercise 5 million times a day. I overeat, you know, but what do you do to keep mentally healthy? So, uh, I have a great therapist who, um, she's this lovely Iranian woman who actually like the reason my therapy was canceled last week was because she's on call. She goes to literal crime scenes. Wow. And works with people who just witnessed something traumatic. <gasps> I love her. So sometimes my session gets canceled because she's like literally at a murder right. scene, like helping people work through it. Um, she helped me work through the loss of my mother. And uh, I work with her every other week. Um, and that I, must also, uh, like, if my therapist had to cancel because she's at a murder scene and then I'm like, you know... Elisa and I had this fight and I just thought, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'd be like so paranoid that whatever I'm saying is so fucking meaningless. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it, it, it cuts two ways. So there's definitely the anxiety of when I'm like, 
oh yeah, this thing happened. And yeah, it's like, you know, again, in grade five with that right. kid, you know, I'm like going yeah. back oh, to all yeah, this yeah, yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, same feeling, but, yeah. So my anxiety can diminish whatever I'm feeling in relation to what my therapist normally deals with. But when she leans in and is just with me, it it's so validating that she's with me there despite right, the fact that right, she just right, dealt right. with me. So it kind of cuts both ways. Um, and so there's that. Um, my, my loving wife Aww. just started going to therapy like a few months ago. So that mm-hmm. was a huge huge breakthrough in our relationship and for her. So now we're kind of doing it together, but separate. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I smoke a lot of marijuana. Yeah, baby. Um, especially the, this is something I only learned in the last couple of years. Uh, the difference between the CBD and the THC, which now with the legal marijuana, you can actually buy weed that right. just tells you the difference. Yeah. And the CBD is the anti-anxiety part. The THC is kind of the psychotic, or not psychotic, right. psychedelic part and psychoactive part. And I just realized that all the times I had had bad experiences smoking weed was it because was too of too much THC. THC yeah. yeah. So now I'll basically just smoke CBD weed, which right. just feels like anti-anxiety medication. Yeah, yeah. Um, I use a an herbal thing that you can just get at Whole Foods which is actually something that comes from the Philippines or Indonesia or Thailand mm-hmm. called Kava. Um, also anti-anxiety med. Um, I meditate, I exercise, I play basketball. Yeah. Um, you know, my son plays college basketball. Wow. Uh-huh. Amazing. Six, eight. He's six, eight. Six, eight. Your son is six, eight. Yeah. That must feel what I don't have a kid yet, but if I had a kid and they were that tall, I would yeah. feel so amazing. It was amazing because I'm six, two. And, um, it was like, when you're taller than me and that I literally have to go like that. Like, it's crazy, you know? Wow. So but where does he play? He played at Tulane. Okay. He is transferring from division one to division three. He wants to have a life. Okay. He really, you know, he went through this whole thing. He's like, I don't, it, yeah, it was a big process. I don't know if I want to play basketball at this level. I want to do yeah. other things, you know, it's defined his life. And he made a decision. He went to therapy and made a decision. Um, well, good for him. Really that's proud of him. So, yeah. That's wise, especially at that age. Yeah. And I mean, they're still not offering any money to those kids, which to me, right. the NCAA, that's well, they're going to now. They yeah, can, apparently. But right. it's just like, it's your entire life. Yeah. You know? Okay. Here's question number two. So my podcast is called Kill Me Now because I basically, ev- everything annoys me. So I'm always like, oh my God, <laughs> I, I want to kill myself. Kill me now. So what pisses you off more than anything that makes you? fucking crazy angry right now it's very specific uh my wife and i rent the main floor of a house there's three irishmen that live above us they're great they replaced um i i support sex work i think it should be legal right same. But we had two women living above us doing uh illegal sex work and so it really tested my politics there of, you know, right. I support this, but do I support it right above my bedroom? Right. Right. <laughs> um, so the Irishmen are much quieter. So that's nice. The folks below us are uh, amazing folks who work in the downtown east side and 
work in the queer community, doing mm-hmm. um, all sorts of beautiful stuff. But uh, one of the people I love in our basement has started dating a young man in the last few months who is learning to play banjo. Oh, boy. It's worse and, than the fucking people doing yard work here. This guy, come. I mean, I would even hate banjo if he was good at it. <laughs> like, so this guy's white. I don't think he knows that, like, banjo is basically the music that introduces racism in movies. Right. Like, Right. When a banjo plays in a movie, it means something really scary and terrible right, right, is about right, to right. happen, right? Um, and I just, as someone who, you know, as we've talked about, goes to therapy, has anxiety, does all this stuff, I just can't imagine this guy's brain that he's so oblivious and confident that he comes to our house every weekend on our days off and sets up in our backyard and tries to teach himself banjo. Oh God, get the fuck out of my yard. And what? I just don't understand his his confidence to not assume that- Entitled, we, entitled. Yeah. And, and, and fucking, who the fuck are you that you think, oh God, I need to come there and talk to him. <laughs> well, we, my wife and I just like, we, we lose it every time. We close the windows, we go for walks or whatever. You gotta but say something. I know, and this is what I'm doing with my therapist right now, yeah, working got, on all this I'm assertiveness. You, Sean, Sean, you have a right, it's your house. Say, look. I know, it is, it's our house. I, right, and you could say, look, I think it's great you're learning to play banjo racist, but, <laughs> you, you know, why do you think it's okay for you to do it outside where everyone can hear in a common area? Like, why yeah. do you think, or go get a fucking trumpet or a clarinet or something yeah, yeah, and go yeah. out there and you got to, Sean, you need, <laughs> a, you need me there. Yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> he, uh, I mean, he also does covers. He's like doing Weezer covers and oh, like Bob God, Dylan no. covers. And then the other day he showed up and this is how oblivious he is. He went up to my wife and he had this tiny case and he's like, oh, I got a new toy. And my wife is just, you know, bottling her right. rage. And he opens it up and it's this thing I didn't even know existed. I didn't know I could hate something more than this banjo, but it's called a banjolele. It's like a cross it's like between a ukulele a- and a band. Oh, yeah. So it's like a smaller, more high pitched, annoying. I fucking hate him. So, all right. Next time this happens, I want you have to FaceTime me. (laughs) Or we can do a thing where I like Cyrano de Bergerac, where I'm like, go out there right now. Yeah. Say, hi. Why do you think this is okay? I'll just teach. I'll just. Uh, you're you're living out that this is all the oh dream things I wish I, I could say. Fucking... Well, this is the this is the Gaelic brain. We're going back to right, the Gaelic right. brain. I, I've been thinking all these things, and then I smile and I say the opposite. No, no you don't need that. <sighs> I need to come over there. I'm going to come visit. <laughs> okay, I would love that. I hate, I hate him. Um, Sean, this was so. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was you're, incredible. I love your story. Um, God rest your mother's soul. Uh, thank you. Thank you she did Jamie. a very good job. Um, you have to have a kid because you need to share this. Thank I mean, you. eight 
generations. <laughs> and Thank you. You can't, yeah. uh, you can't uh, do well on your goddamn math test. Um, well, you, you want to yeah. know what she left me with when we were talking about the guilt. She said a few years before she died, she said she sat me down for the first time ever acknowledged her mortality and said, I've come to realize I'm going to die soon. So you need to have a baby. And that's, that's how she dropped that pressure on me when I was 30 something. Yeah. I'm going to die soon. You have to have a baby. And I failed. I failed at that, but. Uh, you didn't fail. You'll name the baby <laughs> after her. I will. Yeah. That's, yeah. that. that's, that's the plan. You're very, yeah. you're very intuitive. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Sean, good luck with the, the album. I hope Thank we get you. to work together. You're fucking delight. I would love that. Thank you so much for listening to part two of Kill Me Now with the amazing Sean Devlin. Kill Me Now is produced by Laura Vogel, edited by Colin Schmeling. My life and this podcast would not be possible without the help of Brittany Jo Sowards. Please, I'm, at, I'm begging you to subscribe and leave a review. All right, I'm not begging you, but please subscribe and leave a review. And it has to be five stars only, okay? Like I'm a really good Uber driver. They only get three stars, right? Do they get five stars? No, they get five stars. Go to my website, uh, judygold.com, buy my book, download my CDs, uh, find out where I'm playing, read articles I've written, just spend time with me there so you can really get the full effect of being with Judy Gold, which Elisa would say is not that much fun. Anyway, so that's that. I am performing uh, upcoming dates in New York City, September 17th. I am at City Winery. Those tickets are selling fast, and that's going to be a great show. I am also uh, going to be in Minneapolis uh, at the end of September. I'm going to be in Florida because I'm Jewish. Uh, so there's a lot of gigs going on, which I'm very happy about, even though I hate flying, but I do love performing. So check that out at judygold.com. Make sure to follow me on Twitter and Instagram for everything I'm thinking. It's at Judy Gold, J-E-W-D-Y-G-O-L-D, because, you know, I'm a Jew. <laughs> also, speaking of Jews, I want to wish all my Jewish listeners, I am not recording this on Rosh Hashanah. Okay, I'm just telling you that now. But I just want to wish all my listeners a Chag uh, Sameach, Lashana Tova, Tikatevu, happy, healthy, healthy, healthy New Year. Let's get out of this fucking pandemic. If you're an anti-vaxxer, please go fuck yourself. Like, literally do it right now. But I hope you all stay safe and well. Wear masks. Be careful. Take care of each other. I love you all. And as we always say, so long. And uh, everything was wonderful. I'll see you soon. Thank you for the visit. So long. And now, gambling terms. Push, a wager that results in a tie. Even money, bet with the same payout as you wager. Legit, knowing where it's truly legal to gamble in Colorado. You can enjoy legal gaming in Blackhawk, Central City, Cripple Creek, as well as licensed online sports and off-track betting in Colorado. Play legit and gamble only where it's legal. Learn more now at playlegitco.com. A message from the Colorado Division of Gaming. Gambling problem? Call or text 1-800-GAMBLER.